0: You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Laura Duncan, it is so good to have you on Real Faith Stories. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Brian, for having me.
0: I'm very interested in your backstory. You shared with me something that was so difficult, and that is you lost your husband of 10 years, and his death led you on a journey to understand how your spiritual faith and emotional grief could actually be reconciled. And from that journey, you now coach and help thousands of people connect their faith and their emotions. So please share about your backstory, and let's dive into that
1: like you said, we were married for 10 years. We met through a mission organization. I don't know if anyone's familiar with YWAM. That's the organization we met through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, it was a great experience. We traveled to China, just had a shared experience of faith and walking with God and in the mission field. And that was kind of our foundation. And we ended up getting married at a young age of 20. He was 24. And uh, we had kids right away. So we had four kids and people Thought we were crazy because our first three are one year apart, 14 months apart. Wow. So we had, you know, 2001, 2002, 2003, (laughs) and then there's a two year gap with our fourth one. And so she was born in 2006. And we just really felt trusting God with having children, trusting God with his plan for our life. And we ended up starting an international school of ministry down in La Paz, Mexico. And we were down there for a little over a year. We actually had our third daughter down there. So our journey has just been very filled with faith and trusting God throughout the whole process. And so fast forward, we moved to Redding, California, and we well, we moved to Redding, California when we first had our children, but we came back to Redding after we'd been in Mexico. And Jeff went back into the workforce to provide for our family and is just a man of faith where he couldn't do as much ministry because he had to work more hours to provide for us, but he still wanted to pray for people and he still wanted to be active and share the gospel and praying for the sick because that was a big passion of his and so what he did is he would set up a sign at the ho- down at the bottom of the hospital because we have a hospital up on a hill and he would um, park down there and he had this handmade sign that said free prayer and he would put that sign out Wow! and people would be driving up to the hospital and stop and he would pray for them and this is after work he was a, a FedEx driver and then a post office worker and so he'd work you know seven to five or six and then At least one day a week, he would go and set up camp and just pray for people because he just, again, had such a heart for God and heart of faith and and specifically for healing.
0: Tell me a story about your husband and some of his experiences praying for people. I'd love to hear a couple of those.
1: So, he's been gone for 12 years and about Three years ago, I was in a grocery store here in, here in Reading, and a woman came up to me, and she's like, are you Laura Duncan? And I was like, yes. <laughs> I didn't know really how to respond. And she says, are you Jeff Duncan's wife? And I said, yes, my husband's name was Jeff. Mm-hmm. And she said, I just wanted to let you know that I stopped at your husband's sign when I was going to go up to the hospital, and your husband prayed for me, and I was healed. Wow, And I was like, wow, especially nine years later, but she like hugged me and said how impactful it was and how he shared the gospel with her. And I didn't ask her a lot of questions where she was at today, but I just think that's amazing that it would be that impactful nine years later because of the healing she experienced. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, I know. It was amazing. And we lived down in Mexico. We also prayed for the sick. And there was a time where there was like six um beds in one of the floors mm-hmm. and there's six people in the beds and he went through and prayed for each one of them and they were all healed and they actually, like, cleared that floor because they didn't need it anymore <laughs> because everybody was healed. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely, definitely a man of faith and all different types of sickness. Someone had cancer. One time, a person had, was hard of hearing, and he was able to pray for them, and they were able to hear perfectly. They were able to hear before that, but they couldn't hear very well. Yeah. And they were able to take out their hearing aids and be able to hear. So he just, yeah, again, really had a heart for healing.
0: So when he made this decision, Laura... To go ahead and set up this sign. Did mm-hmm. you guys talk about that before he did it?
1: No, actually, <laughs> I was. He was saying it was so funny. He, I saw him working on it because it was handmade, and I was like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Just working on a project." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> and our kids were real young at the time, so I was kind of distracted of you know taking care of them. And then he leaves, and then he comes back, and he takes the sign out of his car, and I see him walking in, and I'm like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Oh, I was just praying at the hospital," and I was like. Oh, okay. And then we did talk about it after that because he would share stories and everything like that. But it's interesting that you said that because he just was a person that wanted to pray and be connected to God regardless of people knowing about it or getting kudos
0: for it or anything like that. Yeah, it sounds like it. I'm just going to do this. It's between me and God and it's just part of who I am. And, mm-hmm, oh, yeah, the exactly. sign, I just, you happened to use this today when I was praying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was pretty funny. And, and of course, we were close. He did share with me, but I like that, that it was a humble act. He wasn't saying, now I'm going to do this big thing to show God that I'm going to, you know, pray for people. It's just yeah. very humble between him and God.
0: You know, I've just got this picture of the administration. The CEO yeah. looks out the window. He's like, come over here and watch this. What What is this yeah. guy doing?
1: What is this guy doing? Exactly. Yeah. You'd look down on where he was at. I bet they did. I bet at least someone saw it. and was like, what is happening?
0: Right. And if he keeps doing this, our hospital is going to shut down. Get him out of here. <laughs> yeah,
1: totally. They're like, we're going to have to give him a fine. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> Buddy, move along. You're not allowed yeah. to do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, I obviously interrupted your story, but I wanted to honor Jeff. What a precious man of God. Wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was amazing. A lot of times when you're raising a small family, you give up doing ministry, you give up doing things because it doesn't feel conducive for your lifestyle, but he didn't let that stop him. So, yeah, just again, we all know where this leads because of how we started, but you can just see the tension Mm -hmm. of him praying for the sick. And then he, in 2008, was diagnosed with uh, Lou Garrett's disease or ALS. And it's a nervous system disease that ultimately causes your nerve endings to not work anymore. So each limb is, has nerve endings on it. And so limb by limb, he was unable to move. And it was very, very difficult because like I said, we had uh, at the time a one-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old. Wow. And so we had these babies, and then he's starting to lose mobility. He wasn't able, so that was in February where we started to notice symptoms and started the process of diagnosing him. And by July of that same year, he could no longer work.
0: Mm. So it
1: was actually a very, I mean, it felt long at the time, but it was a very fast process from mobility to immobile or not completely immobile in July, but not no longer able to
0: work. So, as you're going through this process with Jeff, what are the emotions that you're feeling? What are the prayers that you're praying?
1: It's a great question. So, right in the very beginning, when we first, um, we didn't even actually have the official diagnosis that we knew something wasn't right, and... I spent some time with God and I just said, okay, God, I could feel kind of that, not in a negative way, I'm a very positive person, but you know how sometimes in life, because God's ultimately preparing us for something, you get that impending doom feeling where you know something's coming and you know it's not good and it's going to be painful, but you don't know all the details of it. And so I sat down with God and I just said, all right, God, you know, what do you want me to know? What comfort can I have during this time with what's about to come? And he just said two things. He said, you're never going to have to worry about money and you're always going to be okay. And those two things were just real life to me because, like I said, he had to quit his job. We didn't have savings because we were on the mission field, you know, so finances was an issue with four small children. Mm -hmm. And then just that feeling, once you start to have it unravel, you start getting this feeling that you're never going to be okay because it's so big and it's so out of control and that your worst fear is coming true. So, you start to have that feeling of, I'm not going to be okay. But him speaking both of those things to me really held me throughout the process.
0: And then you've got this tension that you referenced where this man of God is praying for people. He's clearing out this floor at this place in Mm -hmm. Mexico, right? This woman, of course, this was after the fact, comes up to you and says that she was healed. And so, it's like, okay, God, this man has been gifted to pray for people, people get healed. What is going on here? Right?
1: Exactly. The the good news was that we didn't go down a rabbit trail of unbelief. If he needed to jump through hoops, he if he had a forgiveness. We didn't go through any of that. Not that he didn't search his heart and ask God what, you know, if there's anything that he could do or contribute to the healing process, but he knew he was right before God. He knew that he had faith. He believed so strongly that he would be healed throughout the whole entire process that the day he actually left this earth, he was getting up for the day because he would never stay in bed one single day because he said, today's the day I'm going to get healed. So you get up every day with the physical act of being able to say, I believe that today's the day. Mm -hmm. So he didn't waver in faith. He didn't shame himself or feel like something was wrong with him. And he just said, I would rather die believing I will be healed than to stop believing because this is who I believe God to be.
0: What happened next?
1: So, going through that process of declining to the point of unfortunately, as his sole caregiver, I was having to move him with a Hoyer lift, which is kind of like a hammock like uh, machine that can you put like a hammock underneath him and then you Hoyer him up and then you can move him from bed to chair, you know, just be able to move because he no longer had function over his limbs. And then very sadly, what is impacted by this disease as well is your lungs. And so his lungs were deteriorating where he had to have a machine that would help his lungs pump air. It wasn't an oxygen machine. It's called a BiPAP. And Mm -hmm. what it does is it just manually pushes air in.
0: Yeah, because the diaphragm just doesn't function
1: no it doesn't because your heart will keep functioning because it's involuntary but any voluntary muscles their muscle that if they deteriorate the lungs will no longer work and that's unfortunately how he eventually passed away and so it was very difficult he'd have a mask on that i'd have to kind of like lean in and try to understand what he was saying because he couldn't take it off because he couldn't breathe if he took it off and that was for three months that he wore that and All the doctors, all the nurses um, were amazed by him because even though he had this disease, he never got sick one single time. He was never hospitalized. He never went to the doctor. He stayed home the whole time in perfect health except for this disease, which is extraordinary because actually how people usually die is from pneumonia because of laying down. And so him getting up every day in faith was actually kept him alive three to six months longer than he would have if he wasn't getting up every day.
0: So, he passed away when?
1: He passed away in August of 2009. Okay. And it was in the morning. We were about to leave. We came back in. He passed away. His dad actually was there as well, which was really sweet for his dad to be there in that moment. He was up visiting from the Sacramento area Mm -hmm. and he passed away. He, Like I said before, he was getting up for the day. We had at that time, just the last couple of months, had some people come in and help me a little bit, which I was so thankful for. And he was getting up for the day and he said, give me a second, I need to catch my breath. And then he was gone.
0: Gone. That's it.
1: Yeah, he didn't suffer, which I was really thankful for those last Mm -hmm. couple weeks. I was just praying that he wouldn't suffer, that he wouldn't feel like he was suffocating, because that's a common way that people die because they can't breathe anymore. And he literally went from saying, give me a minute, and then he was gone.
0: And now you've got four children and these two promises, you'll never have to worry about money, and you're always going to be okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, so of course— that first period of time, you don't feel like you're going to be okay. But oh, thankfully, the, yeah. the promises of God, like I said, they hold you. Because when you can't believe for yourself, the promises of God carry you. And so, even though I would feel like I wasn't going to be okay, I like knew in my spirit that I was always going to be okay. So, as you see your kids just falling apart, as you're falling apart yourself, as you see family and friends around you falling apart. Because Jeff was so focused on healing, we had many small groups, worship times where people would come over, and so our community really rallied around us, which was beautiful, Mm -hmm. but the aftermath was definitely a faith crisis for many people.
0: Because I can imagine. they
1: saw his faith and and they were believing and everyone was in this momentum of a miracle can happen. And then he he isn't healed. And so there was a lot of there's a lot of pain after, not just pain of loss of him dying, but also the pain of believing in a miracle and believing for healing and not seeing it happen.
0: So that is no doubt, as people are listening to this, one of the biggest questions, and I'm sure people listening to this have wrestled with this personally in their Mm -hmm. own lives. Where is the reconciliation? What did the Lord reveal to you through this very painful process?
1: Yeah. So, one of the really powerful things He showed me, because not only was I dealing with it, just reconciling Him dying after we believed for Him to be healed, Mm -hmm. I had those people, intentionally or unintentionally, that were saying, where's your God? You thought He was going to be healed. You thought this was going to happen. You know, what happened? And everyone knew Jeff to be of good character, integrity, all those things. So they're saying, why did this bad thing happen to a good person? And so now we have that tension, like you're talking about, that probably everyone listening to this has wrestled with directly or indirectly before. And the thing that God spoke to me, he said, it's a mystery, but the thing that's important for you to know when you're saying, why God, that this has already been answered on the cross and we don't understand why people aren't healed on this earth, but you can rest in the fact that Jesus already died for Jeff to be healed. And Jeff is healed today, even if it's not here on earth. Mm. And he also said, my alibi, because now he's on trial. My alibi is I was with you. I was with Jeff. And just because he wasn't healed doesn't take away from the fact that I was with you in it, because he's not the author of death. He's not the author of sickness. And him being with us was such a huge, impactful feeling. And so that's what I would share with people, that he was with us and that the the why has already been taken care of on the cross, even though we don't understand the mystery of him
0: not being healed. I just think of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death,
1: mm-hmm. I'm with you. Yeah.
0: How did that impact the people in your community when you came to that realization and the Holy Spirit revealed that to you and you started to share that with people that were asking that question?
1: So, one of the things that I would share with people in addition to that, I would say my emotional attachment to God is not to what he does. It's to who He is. And who He is, is healer. And so I can be in connection with God and who He is, even if what He does or doesn't do line up with what I believe He's meant to do or should do for me. So many of us have an emotional attachment to what God does or doesn't do, and we miss who He is especially in processes and situations like this that don't turn out the way that we want them to. So now I shifted my relationship from what God does to who He is, and everything changes. Because if you're with who God is, you will always be okay. Death has no sting. Doesn't mean we don't grieve, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't hurt in the same way. Because when you're with God, everything is okay.
0: So this created an opportunity for you as you work through this, to move into a place where you started to help others with it.
1: Exactly. And that is ultimately the basis of what I do with people is compassion. And compassion is to be with and to be with one another in our pain and for God to be with us in our pain. And so that root, that base of God saying, I am with you, became the base of how I help other people go through grief and pain And emotional bondage, it's helping people walk through it by reconnecting to being with God.
0: Please share an example of someone you've worked with and what that process looks like.
1: Okay, yeah. So, one of the things that God showed me, He said, what keeps us from being able to be with is shame. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were with God, and they knew no knowledge of good or evil. They didn't know shame. They didn't hide. They didn't self-protect. But we, in our pain, are self-protecting. We're hiding. We're in shame. We're we're separating ourselves from God. God doesn't separate from us. We separate from God in our shame. And so he showed me how shame keeps us from being with God. And so what I would do is through emotion, being able to feel what we're feeling, because emotions are the base of how we experience shame— Um, I would help people connect to their emotions, be able to recognize not just their pain, but also what they need because we have emotional needs that aren't met that increase our shame because we're not in relationship, we're not with. And so through walking through pain and unmet need and then introducing compassion into that pain, when people look back at the circumstance or look back at the person that's causing them to go into shame, to go into hiding, to separate from ultimately themselves and God, which means we also separate from others. This allowed us to be reconciled, to be with God, free from shame, because compassion came in to be with us in our pain and our unmet need.
0: There seems to me, Laura, tell me if you've experienced this as well, in the body of Christ, a stream of thought that you better not rely on your emotions. Don't pay a whole lot of attention to those things because those are fleeting. That could be related to mm-hmm. exhaustion. You know, it could be related to all kinds of factors, right? What do you do with that?
1: Yeah, I know it's a very popular belief. And in fact, that's actually what I believe for a long time. I believe that emotions were leading us astray and that you just had to believe the word of God. You just had to trust in God and dismiss them because God was bigger than our emotions. Our emotions can't be trusted, almost like they're trying to hurt us and deceive us. But through this process, especially through my grief process of recognizing how important it is to feel emotion, blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. And if we don't feel our emotions, we don't feel our pain. And that's not just in an analytical way, that's in a felt way. That's real emotions, and if you've ever gone through any loss or suffering, it's messy. You're not just perfectly feeling your emotions and then getting comfort and then moving on. You know, you're up and you're down and you're, you know, some moments you feel comfort, some moments you feel like God is a hundred million miles away. You know, you're feeling real, raw emotions. Mm -hmm. And at first, I didn't want to feel them either. I wish I could believe that frame of thought, because then I could protect myself from the pain of feeling. But what I experienced was the blessing of emotion, that when we feel the depths of our emotion, that means that love compassion, nurture, comfort, can come into the depths of our pain. God had told me part of how I started this process. He said, I want you to stop medicating with me. And I was really offended by it.
0: What does that mean?
1: Exactly. So what he was showing me is, and I wrestled with him for a week on this because I didn't, I didn't want to hear it. But what he was trying to tell me at the end of the week is he said, you feel your pain and then you pray and you worship, which just a disclaimer, I love worship. I love prayer. I love the Word of God. But I would pray and I would worship and I would read the Bible and I would get the sense of, okay, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. But I never invited God to come into my pain. I just covered up my pain with God. Because when we connect with God, it releases endorphins of serotonin that give us a sense of well-being because God is extraordinary. But if we haven't invited Him into our pain to be with us, then we are actually covering up part of our heart. And medicating it and feeling better in the moment, but never actually allowing him to come in and heal and be with us in our pain.
0: That is a huge distinction with respect to healing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's huge.
0: I'm just processing that personally. The word invitation is so key here. And and we think, and I put this in air quotes, we think that we're inviting the Lord in as we worship, as we pray, as we seek him. yeah. And it's almost like we know this is the right thing to do, but we're not getting down to the root
1: exactly
0: of taking care of those things.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the extraordinary things of God coming in the form of Jesus to this earth and suffering on the cross because he felt every suffering. He knows exactly what I felt when it felt like Jeff was ripped from me. He knows what that feels like because He's felt it. So Him being with us isn't just this God in the sky that's going to be with us in our pain. It is a God that firsthand chose to experience excruciating pain emotionally because He was betrayed, physically because He died on the cross— Mentally, spiritually, because he was tormented. Of course, he overcame that, but he experienced everything that we experienced. He even experienced a form of doubt when he said, God, if there's another way, let it be. Because he was so feeling, I mean, he felt such extreme emotions that he was sweating blood. Mm Mm-hmm. That's not an emotionless God. That's not a passive God. That's not a God looking at me suffering and saying, just trust me. That's a God that came and was with me in it, that wept with me, that felt the pain of it in such an extraordinary way that I was able to experience healing by Him being with me. Not overnight. There's times He would just be with me and we would sit together in my pain and I would cry and feel that excruciating sorrow and we would just be together.
0: There's this picture in my mind of somebody shaking their fist at God in anger, and then somebody that's just sitting quietly in anger.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know where I'm going with this. Yes. The person that can express that anger openly has, it would seem to me, a much better opportunity for resolution and the ability to be set free than the one who just holds it inside.
1: Exactly. Think about if you have children, you know, you wouldn't want them to hold their anger inside. You would want them to express it just because it's not pretty and it's messy. You'd want them to feel it so you could come and be with them in that. And I completely agree. My belief on our inability to be angry with God, it's almost a codependency that we don't believe that God's going to be okay if we're angry. So we have to suppress that anger. Because God can't handle that anger. But breaking that codependency says God's going to be okay, even if I am angry.
0: Yeah. I just look at David. I've read the Psalms for decades. I've loved the Psalms. And I feel the same emotions. And Mm -hmm. I've I've even had this discussion with the Lord. I've said, Lord, I really want to see David first. (laughs) When I get to heaven, I
1: love that. Yeah, yeah, because you relate with them, you empathize with them.
0: I would kind of sheepishly say that, right?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's completely true. I love David. Actually, the Psalms are actually a picture of exactly the process I walk people through. He starts out completely triggered, out of his mind. Everyone is coming. My my bones rot inside of me. I mean, he has such descriptive language. I mean, he's just in in the epitome of like you know, just despair. And then he feels his emotions. He starts to get softer and starts to share his heart with God because he was a man after God's own heart. And then you see God come in and be with him in it. And then you see the outcome of it. All of a sudden, he's like, I will dance over the mountains and (laughs) you will you know, destroy all my enemies. And you can see his joy come back in and his peace and his belief in God. Those Psalms are the exact process I walk people through.
0: Well, let's dig into that. This is a process that you personally went through. You didn't necessarily, I guess, realize it was a process. This is what the Holy Spirit led you through in healing.
1: Exactly.
0: Then how did it transition to you helping other people? What what happened there?
1: So, what happened was I started getting through my process. And keep in mind, this is a couple-year process. This isn't just, Jeff dies, I get this revelation, and then I jump in. Right. You know, this is at least— Two to three years of me going through this process, really tending to my kids, you know, just going through this. So it took time. But as I started to experience my emotions being healed and God being with me in my pain, I wanted everyone to experience it because my family and community had been impacted by Jeff's death. But also, just like anyone listening to this, we've all had loss. We've all had suffering. So I could pretty much look at every single person in my life and say, they need this. And so what I started to do was invite family and friends into the process. So they would just come to my home, and I'd walk them through the same process that I had walked through, and they would get significant healing, significant life-changing experiences from this process. And then it started to kind of spread, just like anything that really works does. And so then people started to hear about it. Then I started meeting in coffee shops, but then people were snot crying in coffee shops. (laughs) And I was starting to feel, I would look at them and like I said before, emotions originally were very challenging for me. And when I was first starting this process, I would see them cry like that and I'd think, I'd be embarrassed or I, would be, you know, I wouldn't want to cry like that in a coffee shop, even if I'm the one that's helping them walk through it. But people were so wanting to be set free from shame and to come back into being with God, they didn't care. And so they were willing to be in a coffee shop crying like that because they were coming home. They were able to come back to God and be able to heal the things that had separated them from being with God. And so from those coffee shops, a friend of mine had an office. He was only using like three days a week. So then I started to doing two days a week, and then that got so full that I ended up starting to do five days a week of working with people. So it started with friends and family, and then it just kept evolving to different people. And coincidentally enough, which I know of course isn't a coincidence, I ended up speaking. 12 different times in that first year that I started to share with people and I hadn't spoken since YWAM. I hadn't been asked to speak on anything for years and years and all of a sudden I'm getting these invitations, people asking me to come speak on grief, but also coming to speak on this process that I was walking through personally and then helping other people walk through.
0: Sounds like a setup.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking so. But you know, it's funny, like you said, I didn't really get what was happening. I did like a year kind of like summary where I just kind of went through each month and I was just seeing what God had done. I like to do that at the end of the year. And I started writing out everything that had happened that first year. And I was in shock because I kept just saying yes. And I just kept saying yes, but I didn't realize how much was happening in that first year of growth.
0: Sounds like my conversation with Julie Richards a few weeks ago on another episode, that was the key to her explosive connection with the Lord and just him moving her forward, just saying yes, yes. Yeah. I'd love to get your opinion and your, your actual experience in this process between men and women. Do you see a dramatic difference in how men and women process? Because I, I, I can tell you this fact, I won't. I'll let you go ahead and go first.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sounds great. We'll hear what that is after. So when I first started after family and friends, the first group that I started to meet with was actually a men's purity group. And it was a large group of almost 100 men that were coming together to overcome sexual addiction and to walk in purity with God. And they were facing the hard stuff. And what was coming up was shame, of course, because of the nature of what they were walking through. And so, when I first started this process, I was meeting with men primarily, and they were the men snot crying in the coffee shops. And so, I thought the same thing, kind of, I don't know exactly what you're alluding to, of men having maybe less emotions or struggling more with this process of accepting emotions. Yeah. But when I walked them through... I also connect a lot of it with brain science neurologically what's happening to us when these emotions are impacting us and what that means for our mental process mm-hmm. as well as our emotional process and how I communicate it. It's less about emotions just being these flittering emotions that come and women usually have them and they're weak and we're not meant to feel them, especially as men because men don't get emotional. Um, <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's a lot of what people think. Yeah. And for the first time in their lives, They're recognizing the importance of emotion, what happens when we suppress emotion on a neurological basis, and they're saying, I get it. It's not just these emotions that feel like they sneak up on us and they make us feel like we're out of control. There is actually a neurological process to feeling emotions that we understand it. All of a sudden, it's not this out-of-control feeling. We can actually walk through it. So I think how I presented it to men specifically, but it's also how I share it with women, helped it become not just emotional, but also mental as well.
0: That's uh, fascinating to me. The story I was going to share is really what I observe in my wife who is amazing, Cindy, and just experienced this recently. She had a relational challenge and Mm -hmm. she's been verbalizing it with me the past few days. And then she just had a release of crying in prayer and she's good. It's over. And I look at that and I go, gosh, I wish I could just have a good cry And it's over. I have a tendency to just beat the heck out of it in my mind, grind on it, Mm -hmm. you know? And then I bring it before the Lord, but I'm not fully releasing it. And then I look Mm -hmm. at my wife and I go, Can you help me release this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, which is great. Because ultimately, stereotypically, culturally, women have been taught or have had the freedom to express their emotions more than men. But all people, male or female, experience emotion. We just didn't have the space. Men didn't have the space to be taught or to have the freedom to feel those emotions in their early childhood development. So as adults, they're still bumping up against that same lack that they experienced in their childhood.
0: Makes sense. What do you tell them in order to move forward from that space where they're kind of stuck and they can't get that emotional release?
1: So what I do is I help them practice feeling because when we experience triggers, Our reactions to our pain, we want to suppress them because they feel uncomfortable and we don't know what to do with them because we weren't taught. So what I do is I help facilitate and teach them how to feel. So what I say is in the last week, have you felt sad? Have you felt scared? Have you felt lonely? Have you felt angry? And we feel that real experience and then I help them connect with it and connect with their softer emotions because that's the wound that's always causing the reaction in the first place. And I teach them that the trigger doesn't happen to happen to you like a wave crashing over you. The trigger is trying to tell you the reaction to your pain is trying to tell you, help, we have pain. It's a messenger. And so now it takes away the scary feeling of having emotions and reactions that you don't know what to do with, that we mentally try to medicate and try to take care of. Now through the practice of feeling them, they're no longer as scary as
0: they once were. And when you said medicate, there's a billion ways to medicate ourselves.
1: There really is. And our mental process, obsessive thinking or ruminating is us trying to come up with a different solution to our pain because we're adverse to pain. So when you say, when you just kind of beat it up mentally, trying to figure it out, Mm-hmm. You're actually trying to comfort yourself and find a solution, but because you don't know how to feel, you can't find a solution because you won't find it in your intellect. You'll find it in your heart.
0: That's so good.
1: Yep. Just practice feeling. Go back to being a child and just feel. And let yourself feel the big emotions, but then watch them sift down to be more of a tender emotion, which would be sad or scared.
0: What is one of the biggest pieces of advice that you tend to share with people as you go through this process with them?
1: Yeah, That's a really good question. The number one thing that I share with people, or the top couple things, is you don't need to be fixed. Most people come to me because they feel like they're broken and they need to be fixed. What I tell them is you don't need to be fixed you're God's creation. You're perfect. Colossians one twenty says that by the blood of Jesus, everything in heaven and earth has been restored and brought back to original design, factory setting, the garden. But because of pain, because of the knowledge of good and evil, because of pain, we're all covered up. And so my only job is to help facilitate uncovering who we truly are, not to fix, not to change.
0: Oh, that's and then wonderful. the second
1: thing, yeah, yeah. it's really amazing because we're usually coming from a place of broken and we need to be fixed instead of recognizing that we're just experiencing pain and unmet need. And that's causing us to react and have behaviors that are contrary to who we are. But underneath what we do, our behaviors, we are who God created us to be. And Jesus has fully restored us.
0: What was the second thing?
1: And the second thing is, it's okay not to be okay. That's a hard one because we all want to just be okay and not feel pain and not have to look at it. But the beginning of feeling pain is to say, it's okay not to be okay. That's what I had to tell myself after Jeff died. But then at a certain point, everyone says, you need to pick yourself up, you need to move on and you need to be okay. But for years, even up till today, it's okay for me not to be okay.
0: It's great permission to grant yourself. How can people find out more about you, Laura, and your coaching and your helping others.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm also going to be doing a podcast soon. I haven't released it yet. So that's a great resource to be able to start hearing more about what I do. Also, Instagram. I post a lot of this process in small bites on Instagram, which is just Laura Duncan Consulting. And then I have a website, LauraDuncan.com. And I have workshops on there, online workshops, online classes, and then also the opportunity to meet with me one-on-one.
0: Where would be the best place for someone to start if they want to learn more about you in this process?
1: I would definitely start, if you are an Instagram follower, I would definitely start there because I've given it in bite-sized pieces so you could go through and read you know, and be able to connect with some of the videos and some of the information because it can be a little overwhelming at first, but that's a really great place to start.
0: Perfect. As we finish up here, I'd love to have you pray for our listeners, please.
1: No, I would love to. God, thank you so much um, for creating us with emotions. Thank you for the gift of grief. Thank you that we we can feel. And in feeling, we can get the comfort that we need. And I just pray for everyone listening to this that if you've had a loss, if you've had grief, if you've had, if you have the big feelings of grief that you're in right now or you've been in in the past, there is a comforter. There is compassion. And just like when Jesus walked the earth, He was moved with compassion, He's moved with compassion for you you today, for your pain today. And His greatest desire is to be with you in your pain. God, just thank you so much for each person. Thank you that no matter how uncomfortable it is, that you created us to feel. And that's such a gift to feel. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Laura, thank you for sharing your heart with us and your experiences. It's been wonderful.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate how you ask your questions. I think it really helps me open up my story a lot more and share with others. So I appreciate that. Hey,
0: everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.